everyone, and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast. Uh, I'm Dave Baxter. I'm the funds editor on Asset Allocator's sister title, Investors Chronicle. And joining me as ever is our very own David Thorpe, contributing editor on Asset Allocator. David, how are you doing? What's new? Yeah, very good. Thanks, uh, Dave. I've been um, doing, doing quite, looking quite a lot at the uh, fixed income markets lately because there have been some serious movements there. I think at one point, US Treasury bonds went to a 17-year low in mm. price terms or a 17-year high in yield terms, uh, which is slightly counterintuitive for the world in which we are now. So um, that's that's been occupying my thoughts a lot. And the other thing, I guess, the perennial is uh, around income portfolios and how various um, of the DFMs that we cover are uh, are building exposure to equity income in particular at a time when higher inflation maybe makes that hurdle rate that they need to achieve to deliver a real income for their clients um, a little bit higher. So we looked at uh, two, two things. We, we looked at the, the U, well, we looked at the UK and global uh, equity income fund exposures. And at the other side, we looked at the uh, emerging market uh, income allocations but the, i guess the big trend that emerged from the look at the uk equity income strategies is the extent to which um it that it, those exposures are dominated by i guess some very established not just not just funds but indeed fund managers the most owned equity strategy in income portfolios is the stroder income maximizer that's run by Scott Thompson. Uh, he's been there since 2019. That fund is 719 million in size. It appears in six of the portfolios we cover and actually has some momentum about around it at the moment, having picked up a nest of one new buyer in 2023 and the same in, in 2022. And that new buyer in 2023, that's actually enough to have put it ahead of three funds, each owned by five of the allocators that we monitor, including Adrian Frost's Artemis income strategy, which had three sellers to one buyer in 2023 so far. Adrian is obviously a manager that's very well known to anyone in the in the industry. He's been he's been uh, in the market for a very long time. That fund is actually still 4.3 billion in size and it's top quartile over five years. But those heading for the exit may be doing so out of concern that the dividend at 3.7% mm. is arguably not particularly high in the current inflation and interest rate world. Certainly, you know, it's a yield which is below that available even on a short duration gilt. Another of the long-standing managers who's uh, popular among the uh, income allocators that we follow is Gervais Williams. His Premier Mighton UK multi-cap income fund uh, picked up a new buyer this year and is now also owned by five of those that we monitor. Now that fund has been particularly volatile. It was bottom quartile over every time period, although it was the absolute top performer in the sector in the 2020 calendar year. The key uh, to this one may be that it's got a 5.1% yield at the moment, which is um, perhaps more, more attractive for those who are who are looking to 
take income from a fund. And the final of those funds owned by five of the allocators we monitor is Credit Needle UK Equity Income. And this one bucks the trend a little bit in having a newcomer at the helm with Jeremy Smith taking over in November 2022. And the fund has actually picked up two new buyers since then. Mm. Again, it's a, it's a story of um, it yields less than 4%, but it's top quartile over the past year. And that perhaps hints at the ancient dilemma that allocators face in the UK market, where quite often you can generate either a good income or a good capital return. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. So I suppose, you know, on on the surface, perhaps we're seeing a bit of crowding around a few options, but those options stand out to me as being especially kind of different in, in their approaches. Um, you know, if you think, for example, Jabez Williams funds, uh, you know, I've, I've looked at the performance of his, the diverse income trust that he works on as well. And I think that's been sort of the, the worst performer in its peer group of 20 over the last year because it's got those kind of smaller mid caps. So mm-hmm. someone jumping in that is perhaps, perhaps as you say, thinking about valuation, thinking about yield, but they're also kind of, um, you know, running the risk of further pain to come if we do get this sort of much anticipated recession ever coming down the line. Um, and I suppose what what's also interesting is just the, the Maximizer product continues to prove especially um, kind of popular. That's that's always seemed like kind of easy yield play, but um, maybe it's one for people who only are there for the kind of big yield because in theory, those kind of funds that write options should should basically be missing out some of the gains if the market performs well because they're you know, reducing some of their exposure by doing that. But they are also just kind of generating more more income for, for their investors. Sure. And I mean, when we look at the global um, portfolio exposures, that really, I guess, hints at um, the lack of a sort of maximizer type product in that in that market or at least the lack of such a product that that has gained real traction because um the linzer trained global equity fund which certainly doesn't market itself as an income product is actually more popular among income portfolio constructors than any of the global income portfolios out there that you know that have income in the in the name mm. now that may well be a Nick Train effect, it may well be uh, an absolute return effect, and it may well be that you know the Linzer Train investment style is very much focused on large liquid stocks quite often that, that pay a dividend. And to show the extent to which global equity funds haven't really been a happy hunting ground for allocators, the, that Linzel Train Fund, which does not market itself as income, has a yield of 2%, whereas the Fidelity Global Dividend Fund, which, as the name suggests, does market itself as an income fund, and which is the most owned global equity income product among the allocators we cover, has a yield of just 2.66%. Mm-hmm. So the income fund is only yielding 66 basis points more than the non-income fund in that global universe. And that maybe maybe it indicates firstly why UK equity income funds remain quite popular because they actually give you an income relative to the global strategies. And it also again maybe hints at the 
the power or the popularity of Nick Train and his his colleagues um, as investors that even on a product that they uh, that they don't market as income, they can find they can find plenty of, of buyers. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, perhaps that fund also seems slightly more to be slightly more of an intuitive buy for kind of income portfolio constructors than some other global funds because it does um admittedly like you say they're not going to be massive yielders but it does have i think recently something like nearly a third of that fund was in uk stocks you know like some of those big you know uk large caps mm-hmm. and of course if you're if you're an equity income kind of focused type of investor then you do probably think about the uk before other markets even now you know that we've seen kind of improvements elsewhere um but yeah that, that's very interesting um and and perhaps just points to that i suppose that continued debate about kind of total return over income and you know perhaps it's nice just to have some steady stocks in the portfolio even if you know that means you need to generate your yield elsewhere sure i'm talking of generating yield elsewhere um when it comes to allocations one of the things that we we've noticed is that uh Emerging market equities now represent an average of 4.5% of of the DSM income portfolios that we monitor. That's the highest level since since last last spring. It probably helps that uh, some of the DFMs that we surveyed in our recent sentiment indicator are positively minded towards emerging markets in in general. Um, the other factor that may be relevant there is that many of the emerging market central banks, particularly uh, Brazil comes to mind, they put interest rates up well in advance of the US doing so, and therefore now arguably have room to cut rates if they want to, which would have a stimulative effect on, on economic growth. And traditionally, if you cut rates, that boosts equity markets anyway. So it could well be that... Um, people who want a little bit of a growth kick in their income allocation are looking at emerging markets for, for that reason. Obviously, they're a very high beta trade, but if we have a scenario where, um, as the current tragic events in the Middle East indicate we may, where uh, commodity and energy prices go higher again, the exposure to some of the emerging market commodity producers and therefore a hedge against inflation may once again look uh, look quite prudent. Mm. So that's quite an interesting shift. Um, I suppose one question I'd ask is, yeah, where where allocators are taking exposure when they're if they're kind of favouring EM a bit more? Um, because I suppose one thing is if you if you look at high yielding regions, even just in the context of global income then China has kind of quite an outsized presence. Um, so I suppose by by kind of dipping into that region, then perhaps these allocators are taking taking more of a stance on the old, is China investable or not question. Yes, in, 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 indeed. I mean, the, the, um, the Asia exposure within there is is the bulk. I mean, as, as we mentioned, emerging markets are, are four and a half percent of the average uh, income portfolio and within that asia x japan is three 
0.3%, 330 basis points. So the vast bulk of it is is that Asia, uh, is that is that Asia part of the market for for income um, investors. And mm-hmm. um, the other thing that I think was was quite interesting that that came up is um, exposure to European equity funds. Um, at the start of the year, we had um, we had this very strong story and referencing back to China. We had this very strong story around uh, luxury goods and, and revenge spending in, in China and among Chinese consumers. And that certainly seemed to boost the investment case for, for some European companies such as LVMH and Ferrari, which uh, performed very well. What uh, the allocators that we monitor either weren't convinced by the story or are starting to believe that that story is tapped out because at the end of January 2023, the average exposure in a balanced portfolio to European equity funds was 5.4%, and it is now down at the end, as at the end of September, down to 4.7%. Within that, um, Quilter Cheviot has the biggest overweight relative to the peer group at 9%, um, whereas at the other end, Ben Goodridge and the folks at Invesco aren't helping any European equity managers get their bonus this year because their exposure is just 1.6% of their balanced portfolio. But I do think that's very much a story of um, perhaps the luxury goods element uh, being tapped out. And if that's tapped out, then you're looking at the domestic demand story. And well, you know, the European economic numbers from most parts of the continent are, are not any more attractive than they are in the UK. Hmm. So you think they've had enough of the uh, possible Chinese reopening and broader kind of yeah consumer discretionary play and yeah, well well uh, yeah certainly at the at the at the very luxury goods end I mean there's not, there's only so many Ferraris that can be sold or so, so many people who can buy the most expensive um, uh, champagne or, or or luxury clothing or or whatever. I'm afraid in the journalist salary, I'm not that familiar with what half these brands do. Dave, but, uh, I know that they are luxury goods companies, and but I, I think that that seems to be the the pattern from there. Uh, there's also an argument that apart from luxury goods, the other thing that European equity uh, European equity funds can get exposure to is industrial companies, and uh, if we are having an economic downturn, and the industrial production uh, would would weaken and the PMI number from both Europe and the UK indicate that this is already happening so that's I guess another reason not to want to ex- want not to want to have exposure to European equity mandates yeah yeah so um another instance perhaps of Europe becoming a bit of a or continuing to be a bit of a, a niche allocation and uh just one where a few select funds stand out, even after quite a rich run this year, perhaps. Yes, indeed, um, it is. It is. Um, it is a an area where, as well as every fund house has a has a European equity fund, but but not you know they, they can't all um, they can't all be um, and getting inflows or indeed all 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 achieving scale. And you know we've mentioned before that that a BlackRock fund uh, is the strongest. Um, player here and it may well be that if if we keep having uh cuts to people's european equity fund allocation it, it will be hard for any new players to uh, come in and and win a significant share of the the flows that are out there because scale becomes 
increasingly important as as we go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, very interesting stuff, but uh, I'm afraid that is all we have time for. Um, so, David, good to catch up. Uh, just thank you for your time, and thank you, uh, thank you, thank you to everyone for listening. Take care.